Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Download episodes of previous shows. Welcome. to the other. Georgia drivers take pride in their cars because your car is important to you. It gets you back and forth every day, helping you connect with family and friends, getting you to work, to the store, and the football game. Protect the vehicle that protects you with dependable coverage from an insurance company that's known for keeping its promises. Georgia Farm Bureau Insurance, right here in your community. Learn more at gfbinsurance.com. Lately, my family has gotten a little behind on our doctor visits, but this year, that's changing. We're making health a priority with Emory Healthcare. My husband got the knee replacement he's been putting off. My mom is getting a heart procedure that Emory pioneered, and I scheduled my annual mammogram. And with so many virtual visit options, we are getting it done in 21. Make your health a priority at emoryhealthcare.org slash healthfirst. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Fantastic Podcast, the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things related to disability here on Straight Independent Radio. Check out the new Straight Indie Radio website at straight with an eight indieradio.us. We are sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and sankia.org. Check us out on the web to find out about all the great things we do with people with disabilities. I'm your host today, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce, and I am joined by my colleagues, Scott Davis, disabled writer, speaker, and advocate, Liza Citron, future special education teacher and disabled autistic self-advocate, and Dr. Jeremy Pierce, philosopher, my husband, and co-parent. Today, our topic is going to be around to disclose or not to disclose in the workplace and in other arenas in your life. Now, obviously, we're talking about those disabilities that are are often referred to as invisible disabilities because uh, those more obvious visible disabilities, they pretty much disclose themselves. People might have questions about how they impact your life, um, but it's not gonna be a secret. For those invisible disabilities, you know, we have, there's an issue about whether or not we're going to tell people about it and how that's gonna impact relationships, particularly in the workplace. So Jeremy, I wanna start with you. Um, because you deal with you deal in a situation as an as an instructor on a college campus 
you deal with students who may or may not disclose to you about their disabilities and what is that like for you navigating that interaction? Well, there are legal protections for students with disabilities to have accommodations and things like that. And they cannot have those without going through the official channels of disclosing to the campus in general. Now that information is not supposed to be given out to just anyone, of course. They're also protected in that way. But I mean, the, the, the college or university is not allowed to tell me what disability a student has. They have to self-disclose that if they want me to know that. And a few of them do, and a few of them don't. But I will get a, um, an accommodation list of things that I am required by law to do, to give them extra time on exams or a note taker or make sure that stuff is formatted in a certain way or whatever it might be, uh, whatever the accommodations are, I, I then have to follow those accommodations. And sometimes I can do more than that, but I can't do less than that. And they can't get those protections unless they do disclose. So there is a self-interested reason to disclose, at least in a college or university setting, so that you can get the extra support that you need. Um, but they don't have to actually make it so that everyone knows what their disability is. But there are some ways that it's inevitable that someone will figure it out. If you're taking an exam in another location, you don't have to make that public, but you're not gonna be there at the exam and someone may notice that. And um, depending no. on the disability, there are accommodations where someone has someone showing up with them in class to be a support, in which case someone will see that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, at least in terms of the college and university setting, it seems to me that there is a self-interested reason to disclose at least to the campus or to the, to the official channels, to the disability services office or whatever they're calling it at that particular institution. Uh, there may be self-interested reasons not to, or at least not to make it public to everyone if you're worried about how people may treat you and that kind of thing. Uh, and there are other concerns besides self-interest as well. For example, do you want to encourage people to think about their moral responsibility toward people with disabilities by making them more aware of who around them has them? There may be a moral reason uh, to disclose for that reason, or perhaps you don't, you might not come to that conclusion, but there might be other factors like that as well. I could imagine someone wanting everyone to know that's interacting with them so that they can be an example in front of people. I could imagine that being someone's motive, but I've certainly had students who have not disclosed to me that have, they have disabilities. Uh, I've had some that have disclosed to me that they do and then have not gone through channels to get accommodations. And usually they say, I don't need them. That's what they'll say. Yeah, I, 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 I'm registered with them, but I don't do the accommodations. I don't think I need them. There, I've had students who've said that. I've had students who have just simply not told me anything and in some cases, I've suspected maybe they don't know, but I've been able to 
tell that it's almost certainly true in a few cases by how they communicate, by uh, how they seem to me to be processing information and that kind of thing. And I've had a few cases where I've suspected it and I haven't known whether they've known, but I've suspected it. But there have been a few cases where I've been pretty, pretty sure. I've been pretty sure. But they haven't said a thing to me. And I, of course, wasn't going to say a thing to them. Uh, there might have been a few cases where I probably could have gotten them some help if I'd said something. But I don't have enough information to really make that judgment. So it, it's a difficult position sometimes for, for a faculty member to know whether to, to do that. I, there have been a few cases where I've encouraged someone to, to check to see if they can get accommodations. So sometimes that's, uh, there's a number of issues in there in, the, in a college setting. So and you, you raise um, an interesting point in, in a situation where based on your experience as a parent and also over 20 years experience teaching at the college level, when you come across someone who you, you suspect would benefit from <laughs> the kind of accommodations you can get from a disability services office, but they don't seem to be aware of this. What do you do in those kinds of situations? Do you offer them accommodations anyway? Or do you, you try to present them with information in, in, in a way that is more accessible to them? How does that work? I'm not supposed to offer them disability accommodations if they haven't registered their disability with the Office of Disability Services or whatever whatever it's called. Every, every campus has a different name and sometimes they come up with creative names so they don't use the word disability, which is an interesting <laughs> view in itself. Uh, I've always found that strange. But the, the uh, I mean, it's Office of Accessibility Services at one of the, one of the colleges I'm at. And, and uh, I can't remember what Syracuse University changed it to. They changed it to something recently. But Still the, disability though. But it's not. It's not what it. They changed the name for some reason. Yes, they did. It used to be Disability Services Office, and they've changed okay. it to something else. Another but manifestation of Lemoyne, perhaps. Lemoyne College uses the word uses the name Disability Services, and Onondaga Community College uses Accessibility Services. If I they, remember, and that was a deliberate change. If I remember correctly, here it is Center for Disability Resources, CDR. It used to be ODS, Office of Disability Services. Yeah. But, he, but at the moment, I think it's, it's CDR. But you can change, um, you, can, you can provide accommodations to someone who doesn't have a documentable disability because you think their situation deserves it. And so I think one reason to expand to accessibility services is you're making things accessible to more people, even if it's not a disability. And I've certainly had cases where that's true. Uh, for example, mental health issues where it's a temporary mental health concern, perhaps because of COVID or something like that. Being a little bit more willing to give extensions, being a little bit more willing to, uh, to, to let them do something in a slightly different way. And uh, there's been a lot of that. And, th and the, the places that I teach at have been telling us to do that. And it amazes me when I see some professors, particularly our son's professors, who are not willing to give any accommodation, even ones that are, that are explicitly said, 
you 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 ought to consider doing this in his uh, in his uh, list of accommodations. It does not say they have to do it, but it says it explicitly says please take into account his disability when considering things like deadlines for assignments. And they won't. They say, oh, it's not fair to the other students if they're not required by law to do it because it doesn't say they have to do it. They won't do it. So I, I see yeah. that a lot. I see that a lot as a parent of a college student who has a disability. Yeah. And I think so. we also we what you were saying earlier about you seeing students who, from your experiences, you're pretty sure that they're disabled, but they may not know. That gets into something that I have really, really thought about. It's this weird place that educators are in, whether that's a college professor, a little less so, but especially for elementary school teachers, you spend all this time with the person, in this case, a child, to the point where you may know certain things but you're not a diagnostician, so you can't act on them. Right. Well, in, fact, in an elementary school, you have psychologists that can walk in and observe them and administer testing and so on. Yes. And, and that can happen in the course of the regular school day. At a yes. college, you don't have that. They have to no. go to an office, request some kind of evaluation. And typically, they I don't know. I mean, typically, I think they'll probably refer you out and say, go see a doctor or something. Yes. I don't, I don't think they'll do it on campus. Yes. I no, think they you won't. have to provide the documentation to get the disability services. They're not going to do it for you. Right? In, at the college level, at least, the, we've talked about whatever they call the, the, uh, the office of the department that's responsible for uh, providing the recommendations for accommodations. So students have the option to go to that particular place and disclose and ask for the support that they need. Now, transfer this to the, the workplace, the work, the business world. The, the closest thing we have to a disability services office or whatever it's called on, on a particular campus is the human resources department. So what's going on there in the human resources department with respect to disability with respect to is it creating an atmosphere where workers feel comfortable disclosing whether or not they have a, a disability and asking for accommodations. Now I presume that the same confidentiality laws apply whether or not they're followed that's something else and whether or not a particular employer is prepared or equipped with the understanding and with the tools to provide effective accommodations for their employees? That's another question as well. Liza, what has your experience been both as a student and as someone who's been in and out of the workplace? Well, first I have to say that uh, when we were talking about <clears throat> visible versus invisible disabilities, I deal with things that can be both and that really affects the ways in which I'm treated. Autism, obviously, in almost all cases, especially for those of us who mask, is essentially an invisible disability. 
However, my mobility issues, my the fatigue, invisible disability, a lot of other things from the fibromyalgia, invisible disability, my mobility issues on the other hand, they're in this weird position of being one one day and not the next, because depending on the day, I can go with no mobility aid, go with a cane, I have a folding cane, go with crutches, go with all the way down to wheelchair use. So it's really different the way I've been treated on days when my disability is less visible versus when it's more visible. And I tend to be outspoken about it anyway. I tend to 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 tell people just because that's my life, that's the field I work in. But my experiences obviously in in middle school they weren't great, but in college and, and university age uh, thing, that that those it depends on the year, it depends on the university. When I was at a small community college in Western Massachusetts, the disability services provider was absolutely not willing to discuss anything with me. She had one expectation of individuals that would be coming to her, individuals that would not be able to have a conversation with her in the way she thought of a conversation as being. Individuals that she could say what they need without them saying what they needed. And when she came face to face with someone who was outspoken and knew what they needed, she did not, she was not willing to to really do anything. Now that changes based on the fact that, of course, she comes across a smaller number of people in the first place. It's a school in a very, very loosely populated, opposite of dense area. And so because of that, she came into less pe- into contact with fewer people in the first place, and thus a lower percentage of disabled people. But it was also potentially just something about the office and the way it was set up. Here at SCU, I've had better experiences. There have still been a lot of things that when I do disclose, people just either don't understand or they aren't willing to provide me with what I need or even in some cases, and I'm working on this right now, assignments are inherently inaccommodatable. They go against the accommodations that some people might need. You cannot accommodate in them. As for the workplace, I haven't really had the experience of that. On the one hand, I have in my reception jobs, 
I did. I've mentioned things just as they come up. But in those, I tend to make my own accommodations. And then in everything else, it's something that is based on me being disabled. That's why I work in it. Here, for example, that is why I'm doing it. And in, in classes, it benefits me to disclose. I would anyway, but it benefits me to disclose because I can, you know, actually have, I actually have this perspective on the issues that we're talking about. There are some ways in which it, in which it harms, it singles me out and such, but in most cases there, it does benefit. And I'm just used to being treated the way the world treats disabled people. So I, in, in general, not, you know, everyone treats people this way, but just the way the disabled people are treated in this, in this world, oftentimes I'm used to it. So I may tend to disclose more than is self-serving because then I end up being able to help others with that information. For example, if I had to advocate for someone else, but I had not disclosed my information, I would because it puts me in this perspective of actually being able to have those same similar experiences and, and be in that position of accommodation. My biggest concern, however, is when I go into schools, when I go into job interviews like this, do I, if it's a day when I don't need any mobility aids, do I go in using my wheelchair because that's a representation of me? Do I go in using my crutches because that's a representation of the way I could be? And keeping that from them on the basis of looking good to be hired is falsely presenting yourself. Is it? That's the question. Is it falsely presenting yourself if you your disability is invisible or it fluctuates? So I haven't really had too many experiences like that, but, but I'm incredibly concerned for it in the future. Despite the fact that because I'm disabled, I may be better equipped to teach disabled students, people don't see that. Yeah, and a, a lot of the things that you just said really resonated with me. Um, I am still relatively new to my diagnosis, but when I went back into the workforce, I chose the mental health field because that's something that was familiar to me. I had already recognized that I dealt with depression and anxiety. And I, I really wanted to be able to help people deal with that and help teach people more about that and help normalize that. And so I chose to go into the mental health field. I worked with people with mental illnesses and it was always in the forefront of my mind that I could have been one of these folks who life had kind of steamrolled over and they hadn't 
had access to the right kinds of support and the right opportunities. And so they were in a position where I was working with them and teaching them life skills and things like that. My experiences as now knowing that I'm an autistic individual, that also shaped the field that I chose to be in. I chose to work in a field area where I can help other parents who are struggling to figure out how to help their autistic children. I chose to be in a field where I'm talking about special education, advocating for more special education resources. And I chose to be in a field where I could pull in other people who have disabilities to be my colleagues. So yes, some of us, we get the opportunity to pick a field where people are already familiar with disabilities, are already familiar with mental illness, so they're not going to freak out if someone's like, hey, yo, I'm just like the people that we're working with, or, you know, I deal with mental health issues too, or I also have a disability, an invisible disability in my case, although as I get older, physical disabilities seem to be on the horizon. So that, there's that one thing of picking a, 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 a field, an area that you know is going to be accommodating because it's a, a service field where that always serves people with disabilities. Now that's not always to say that you're gonna find people in those service areas, uh, providing services to people with disabilities who really get it and who understand, um, you know, nobody, nobody's perfect. But thinking about those workplaces that really have nothing to do with serving people with disabilities, what are some of the things that can be done to help create an atmosphere where people feel comfortable asking for help? And Scott, you've been quiet, but I know that you've been doing a lot of digging into this. So yes. what's some of the information that you've come across about creating a, a, a workplace where people feel comfortable disclosing, if not to their colleagues, at least to the employer or to the human resources department, and asking for accommodations. One way is to normalize it. And one place was the idea of the universal accommodations where the office uh, for the uh, employers, human resources can identify and let people with whatever disclose because studies have shown that even if someone's accommodated for hearing aids, it may not be for deaf, it may help the entire employee and, and have that awareness and also even on the side of diversity to have employers it doesn't quite fit into us but for uh, where they send out cards recognizing the holidays of different traditions to everyone so at least it's not singling them out and to have sensitivity training and cultural awareness but especially we were talking about the employment issue one article mentioned how you can uh, provide that all the way from the interview process, ask what you need when you're in the job and then to be promoted. And then also when you leave the job to have that be a whole aspect of it. And also it can help build morale, decrease the turnover and helps the bottom line. So it has, and then there's also the idea of empowerment and engagement and finally, someone known as Dale S. Brown mentioned that there's like a performance resource assessment where you analyze the task 
that gives you this hard time, then you identify the uh, either disability or the causes and details of the difficulty. Then you try to brainstorm those solutions, you tweak, try it, and then you tweak it. So it's basically setting up these strategies and it would have been, because when I was working, I had the accommodation in the sense I was given the key and the security code at the office. And, and they, they said, oh, if you have to stay, Scott, we'll pay extra and then we'll give you the money for the cab on the way back. So at least I had the, I didn't feel pressure to get it done by five o'clock because I had orders to help the uh, customer sign or I had to take care of helping make sure every all those uh, COD invoices were on the orders and just a bunch of different crazy things trying to get everything lined up. So it's not an easy topic, but I also another thing you can do is have stories where people can promote either inside the uh, internet or internet outside to promote that business of some different stories. And ultimately at the end, it's going to promote a return on the investment. This, there's so many layers and I just scratched the surface, but this is a good introductory conversation. You mentioned a lot of great details there, and I, I wrote them all down so we can kind of work our way through them. Now, this idea of universal accommodation, accommodations that are always on the table so that people can utilize them without having to ask, that certainly sounds like it would create an environment where someone with an invisible disability to, would say, okay, this is a place that, that kind of gets it they understand that, that people need support to bring their A game to the workplace. So what are some things that can be universal accommodations? Liza, let me start with you. What are some things that you think of when you hear universal accommodations? Well, there are things that you can work into, for example, your communication system in your organization system in the office, depicting things in multiple ways, for example, that helps people so that they don't have to come forward and say, hey, I am having trouble understanding this. I need it in this format. You can have certain programs automatically installed on work computers if you have work computers or, or by a work membership to a particular service so that anyone can use it, not just disabled individuals, but it's there as an accessibility resource for disabled individuals. Scope out a space. And if you are in the market for a new space for your business, exclude ones that have stairs and no accessibility in other ways, stairs and no elevators, for example. Hmm. Provide a big, big one, make sure that everything you show is properly captioned. Any videos you show are properly captioned because that's something that you can provide there that is not going to 
get in the way of abled individuals. In fact, it may very much help them, but it also makes things accessible for disabled individuals in your workplace. Yeah. I There's love that so you always reasons. remind me to turn on the captions. Now that live captioning is an option, I love that you always remind me to turn it on. Because yes, it, it is very helpful to be able to look at a screen and read something. Um, you also mentioned providing information in 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 multiple ways. Um, we have a kiddo. He he makes. We used to do it for him, but now he makes his own signs to remind him of stuff. So you know, posting posting signs and notes around the workplace to help remind people of, of, of policies, procedures, sharing information with them. That's one way to create, people don't think of that as a universal accommodation, but actually that that is having the signs, the posters, picture information, written information that people can read. Um, I'm getting to a, to a stage in life where I appreciate things that are in large sized font and uh, yeah um also yes choosing an choosing an accessible location is is key for people who have the the visible physical disabilities and to be honest any of us could at any point become someone who has a physical disability and needs access to an ada accessible space um, are there any other things that you can think of, Jeremy or Scott, that would count as universal accommodations? Well, I pretty much have the same open policy with all of my students, whether they have a disability or not. They might have one and they just haven't said so. That uh, if, <clears throat> if they request an extension, I give it, period. I don't ask them what their reasons are. They might tell me. But I, if they want more time, I give it to them. I, I, I don't have any reason not to. Why would I care about that? I, I don't, I mean, is there any reason why I shouldn't give them an explanation if they want a little bit more time to do this one assignment? Knowing that that's going to then cut into their other assignments later on. I mean, I might, if, if I see the same people doing it over and over again, I might say, the more stuff you're getting behind on, the, the harder it is for you to do it all at the end and so on. I may have reasons to inform them of that, make, draw that to their intent, attention. But I, I typically, if someone asks for a little bit more time, I always give it to them. If they want, um, um, if they tell me they have to miss class, meaning in the current moment, they can join by Zoom if the reason is they just can't physically get somewhere. But uh, that's not going to be permanent. We're going to be going back in the fall, most likely to no Zoom, unless you're in an online class. And then we're going to go back to the way it was before, which means if they don't make it to class, they're going to have to either get notes from someone or they're going to have to schedule time to, to make it up and that kind of thing. But I've always been accommodating about that. And I don't usually ask them why. It's not really my business to know why. I know a lot of faculty will want you to prove you had it's by producing an obituary for someone who who died or to, by by um, producing a doctor's note 
And to the point where some students are paranoid enough about that, that they'll disclose information that they shouldn't be disclosing. I had a student hand me a form one time, but not, I didn't ask for it. The student just showed up and said, this is why I wasn't here. And it was a, a, a doctor's notes from an office visit about an STI. And I don't need to know that. You don't need to share that with me. I just need to, you to communicate with me. That's what I care about. That's the responsible thing to do. That's what I think a workplace expects in general. But the reason the reason that students are doing that for you is because there are professors that likely have 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 caused them to do that. Have oh right, and I'm just saying that the the fact that faculty expect that of students is stupid. Agreed. Why do you need to know all that. There's no reason you Agreed. should need to, to know that. Yeah. If, if a student's having difficulty getting an assignment done or can't make it to class, the fact that they've communicated me with me about it is enough to show that they're being responsible. They realize they should be there. They're realizing that they're in a circumstance that's making that difficult. And they're communicating with me enough to, to let me know that they wish they could be there, but they can't this time. And so I'll be accommodating to them. And I don't have to see a disability form. I don't have to see a sports form. I don't have to see a doctor's note or an obituary or anything like that. They just tell me I can't make it to class today. Yeah. If there's anything I can do to make it up, let me know or yeah. whatever. If you can send me the notes, I'd appreciate it. If you can send me the Zoom link, I'd appreciate it. I if you want to have a conversation with though. me, right? <laughs> yeah, your experience as, as a parent of parenting people with disabilities has you primed to understand that, understand how much better it is to, to be open and understanding like that. That's not always the experience in a, work, in a workplace. In fact, oftentimes in a workplace, people are forced to do exactly what you're saying it doesn't make sense to do, prove that they need to take time off. They have to prove that they deserved that time. Oh, yes. To, to, to take care of themselves. And one of well, the things that makes a workplace more welcoming is to stop doing that. Stop people, stop making people prove that they need time off to take care of whatever it is they need to take care of so that they can be fully present at work. The workplaces with better benefits will give a certain number of days that you don't have to say what's going on. You can just take off. And so there at least is that. And I mean, in, in the college setting, I see that as well. They'll say, you can have four days that you miss class and I won't ask any questions. But then they won't let them even have legitimate excuses beyond that, which is just stupid. Yeah. So I, I just, and I, I see that in faculty syllabi. And I think, what happens if they use their four days for legitimate reasons? Yep. And then they get a fifth legitimate reason. They don't I get excused. Hi, I, right. I've had that issue this semester. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, so that, that act of requiring people to prove that they need to take a break, stop doing that. It, it really does place a barrier um, in the relationship between employer-employee or between student and instructor. You know, we are not... Well, okay, so maybe there are some people who, who think of their employees or students as being wholly owned by them, but that's not actually the case. No. So that, that's, I think that 
not requiring people to prove that they deserve time off or deserve a break is really important in in terms of providing an accommodation. Now we're we're running running down on time, and there's a lot of things still that I want to discuss. Um, there's some insights. I'm sorry. Say that again. There's the whole idea with this uh, diversity or the disclosure. There was two different things uh, that I found interesting in an article. They mentioned sometimes employers are looking for a percentage of each group called like affirmative action. Then there's the laissez-faire approach where anyone, and then that's if you're looking at the uh, whole idea of the universal, that's a whole discussion you can have. That's mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. how you represent. And also the idea of some benefits I was just thinking about, which is on a positive side, you get innovation in a company, respect and, and a good return on the, on the diversity, but also I just didn't, I realized this, that this whole disability market is a global market, it's emerging. So if we look at whether it's someone in the school system that's getting educated, that's a good teaching tool because some of the teachers will go back into business or some of the parents might go into business. So it has its ripple effects. And finally, when I was uh, taught my, in my speech therapy, my speech therapist was in a wheelchair. She was disabled. So, and even my first professor of philosophy, Dr. Coleman, he was blind. So, and I helped one of the first students, Tim Daly at Fairfield U, I helped him with his reading for a couple of his semesters. So it's all around us, this disability. Yeah. And myself and Scott, living with. Yeah. Scott, you mentioned um, in, in part of universal accommodations, you also mentioned ex an accessible interview process. And that is huge because for a lot of people with invisible, invisible disabilities, they don't even make it to the interview because the, the application process is, is, is so discriminatory, it weeds them out. It's like, and I've been through the process of applying for jobs in, in different uh, fields. And yes, that the, the process itself of applying is a nightmare. It's unnecessarily complicated. And every single application process, they're like, here, upload your resume. And you're like, okay, great, I've uploaded my resume. But then <laughs> the rest of the application process is typing in the information that's in the resume that you uploaded. The application tracking system, also known as the black hole. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so yes. think, thinking about the application and interview process, what are some of the ways that that can be made more accessible for people who have disabilities? And we don't even have to limit it to the invisible disabilities. That can be made more accessible to people who have physical disabilities as well. People who are blind, people who are deaf, people who have mobility issues, people who might not be able to type on the computer for long enough to type in every last detail of their resume that they just uploaded. Let's talk one about way, that. One way is, is just to 
have within the organization, possibly if, if they can get like a disabled person who can also be part of the hiring process. So then you would feel comfortable with it. I don't know how all of our other panelists feel about that. That's oh no, I think I, I, that's why I'm in anywhere where disabled people are as the people that are served or, or, or anything like that, there should be disabled people. I mean, that's my whole thing with disabled students should have disabled teachers in the school they're in. I mean, that's the whole thing there. And I think one thing that would be really helpful, and Scott, you reminded me of this when you talked about including disabled people in the, the decision-making process for hiring, is have disabled people test the application and interview process. Um, our, our, our kiddo who is um, extremely good at finding ways around security measures. I always, when he was little, I would always joke that we should get him a job testing security systems. And if he can defeat the security system, we need to send it back to the engineers because it's not that good. <laughs> and there, we need, that's something that we need to be doing. Having disabled people test these processes and procedures to see how actually accessible that they are. Yeah. Because accessibility um, processes and accommodations that are put in place by abled people don't always work for disabled people. I mean, really. No, they don't. We've all, we've all seen pictures yeah. of this beautifully designed staircase that integrated ramps with the stairs, but actually anyone who needed to use a ramp wouldn't be able to use that particular entrance because the angles are all wrong. There are no handrails. You know, and so there, it's really important to have disabled people testing whether or not something that's meant to be accessible really is accessible. Liza, were you going to say something? Exactly. Well, I, I've seen that. I've seen that picture, certainly. But on days when I'm in my wheelchair, handrails, people may not think handrails are accessible. I mean, are, are necessary. Oh, you have your chair. I use them to pull myself up because the people sometimes make ramps too steep or self or they make it in such a way that they expect it to be used by power chair users and it's almost impossible to self-propel up or mm -hmm. like it feels it feels like you're doing something to say you're doing something but also to be cool and trendy and and tokenize tokenizing our experiences which has been an issue for, for I don't even know how long. Yeah, from pretty much the beginning. Ever? It's, yeah, there's, you do something to look like you're doing something. There's that performative uh, piece to it. But what we're talking about is, is doing things that are meaningful, um, that are truly accessible, and that are truly inclusive. So we have a few minutes left. Oh, I'm, I just had a, I'm sorry, what were you saying, Scott? I had some uh, interesting things. We didn't really talk about mm -hmm. the negative aspect. And just I'll just mention a few about this whole idea of disclosing. Yep. Some people are against, an article said, some people are against disclosing because of them being labeled 
or they're tired of fighting the stigma. Yep. Intrusive questions, despite any of the five, 503 regulations that are out there. That's the number. Yeah. I have no clue what that is. I research that. But those, that's just a few thoughts. Yeah. Toss into that the, actually, that actually plays really well right into the next question that I was going to ask. And that's about, it's not about the workplace, but it's about parents and what they should or shouldn't disclose about their children's disabilities. This is something that I have, it's been 20 years, folks. It's, some, it's a question that I wrestle with over and over again. And for myself, I've always erred on the side of, you know, just disclosing for the sake of creating normalcy. Now that my kids are, are older and they're adults, it's up to them whether or not they disclose, but for my, in their personal situations, for myself, I will always disclose because I want to fight against that very stigma that you mentioned, Scott, of people being labeled, getting intrusive questions, having to deal with stigma. So that's why I disclose. The, the, the question is that I'm looking at, what are some of the things that parents need to weigh as they think about whether or not they will disclose about their child's disability? Jeremy, since you're a parent, why don't you start? I think the, the major issues are, as I said at the beginning, I think there are self-interested concerns and there are those point in different directions and you have to weigh them out against each other in a particular case. There are concerns about getting what you need, getting accommodated. And in some cases, disclosing will help people to understand in a way that they might think something, they might blame you or, or think there's something, like you're doing something wrong. When if they knew that there was a disability involved, they might be more willing to accept what's going on. Uh, there, there are certainly cases when, when that is so. And when I'm out with my second son and he does things that people don't expect, like he throws himself on the floor or he um, uh, is just behaving in a way that people will find different and odd. Uh, if they were to know, I mean, some of them might figure it out just by watching him, I suppose. But if they were to know what's, uh, what's behind it, they would be a lot more understanding and not judging. Of course, there are those who are going to judge anyway. And there are those who will judge perhaps more when you do disclose. But I think we're at a time now when that can help. There are ways that that can help. People knowing that there's something like that going on are going to be more likely to be accommodating and understanding. At the same time, depending on the social situation, there are cases where disclosing is going to cause, it's not going to cause, that's not the right word. It, it's, it's going to make it more likely that other people will cause problems. Um, and depending on when you're talking, I mean, especially if you're talking about children, you're going to have uh, things like bullying and that kind of thing. Is that going to be more likely if they do know, less likely? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But it's, certainly not just plain disclose because it's better for you. It seems like there are going to be 
consequences that are more difficult if you disclose. And I tend, in more cases, probably to favor disclosure out of self-interest than not. But I don't know if that's a universal thing that's going to apply to every situation. Sometimes it might be best just not to say anything. And for those who are more hidden about it, maybe it doesn't make any difference. I don't know. I really don't. But as I said earlier, and, and, and I think Liza might have chimed in to agree with this, I'm not sure, but to, to uh, the idea of some reasons for disclosure might be to encourage people to be more thoughtful about what they're doing, to recognize there are people around me who have disabilities, and how should I be thinking about that when I don't know that they have it? If I know that there are more people around me that do, then I'm going to be thinking about it more often. Is that something we should encourage in people? Is that something that we should be promoting? And it, when we do disclose, there's it, it does that moral, it achieves that moral good in the world of of making people more aware that there are people around them who have disabilities and they might not have known about it. When they discover that someone that they didn't think had a disability does, how does that affect them? So there are some moral reasons why we might consider it as well. Not that it's an absolute requirement or anything, but that's something to consider. And I would say that, John and me, that it's this whole idea of, because there's a, uh, a Toastmasters group that's called Different Abilities, and it has both people with disabilities and those without, and that it teaches the communication and how to, how to get, get, get it out. And obviously it's a different kind of group I've been with twice, but just understanding how you can teach them and you can have different expectations. I expect them to be following the exact model of Toastmasters Club. Then they said it's gonna take them a while and they have to get comfortable themselves. And when you're in the workplace, because I always had struggle, whether I was at school or whether I was at work, just trying to figure out how to do the process. Because I had, we had a tickler system at work that my boss helped set up where by salesman or, or by customer, we could put some documents in there in case for some reason I might have misplaced it or someone else did that was easier to find as backup. But with a fast-paced environment, as I exploring am exploring in my newsletter, it's just challenging to try to get the how do you disclose or how do you try to have the boss. And these will be some good points to continue in that discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the things that that I that concerns me about disclosure, particularly with children is one, you've got the privacy issue. And yes, there are moral reasons why it might be a good idea to disclose um, when you're dealing with children, but there needs to be some discernment involved in what's disclosed, where it's disclosed, when it's disclosed and how. Because I think we've all seen some, some really cringy videos out there of parents who are tearfully going on and on about all the things that they're certain that their children won't be able to do because their child has a disability. Mm -hmm. That's not actually the kind of disclosure that is helpful to people with disabilities. That's actually part of what builds the stigma 
and generates the in intrusive questions and generates the, the all those negative connotations of the label. So that is absolutely not the kind of disclosure that we need. And parents out there who might be considering doing that, don't do that to your kid because your kid might grow up and see that someday. <laughs> and, and no, don't come back with the, well, my kid will never be able to understand it. Well, just because they wouldn't be under, able to understand it doesn't mean you should say it. Yeah. Um, any last comments on the issue of whether or not to disclose in a workplace, how to make a workplace um, more accessible and accommodating for people who might wish to disclose, or even if they don't. And this issue of children and what their parents or caregivers should or shouldn't disclose about them. Do I have to call on you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, this is a, a complicated issue, and I think we've only really touched the, the tip of the iceberg, so we're, we're going to come back to it later on. But for now, you've been listening to the Life Fantastic podcast, the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things disability here on Straight Independent Radio. Don't forget to check out the new Straight Independent Radio website, straight with an A, indie.us, straightindieradio.us. Excuse me, I want to send you to the wrong place. Our podcast is sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and santia.org. Check us out on the web to find out about all the great things that we do with people with disabilities. I'm your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce. Thank you so much for joining us in this discussion about disclosure. And we look forward to having another discussion, great discussion for you next time. If you like to do this or that, or even that, and you want to stay with it, Emory's got your back, or your shoulder, or your hip, or your knee. Our sports medicine specialists treat more world-class, professional, and college-level athletes than anyone else in the state. We'll treat you like a pro and get you back in play. That's the Emory difference. Make an appointment at emoryhealthcare.org sports. Status is important to all of us. Particularly, your HIV status can influence your health and well-being. Do you know your status? Search GNR can help with free HIV testing, at-home testing, condoms by mail subscriptions, and prescriptions for medications that can protect you from contracting HIV, known as PrEP. Stay healthy, protected, and prepared, no matter the status of your relationship. Learn more at SurgeGNR.com. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes.
Greetings and thank you for tuning in to the Manifest Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Lima Pasha, executive wellness coach and business consultant. I help women business owners manifest wellness by teaching them how to go from drained to reclaimed. Subscribe now and comment below with your questions related to wellness and your business. Stay tuned to the end. I have a special announcement. I am so excited today to bring you a phenomenal guest. She is a Renaissance woman, Kim Evans. She has been an owner of Two Gorgeous Health and Wellness Integrated Spa for more than 25 years. And now she is pivoting with her podcast and specialized coaching services where she can help you. So Kim, tell us a little more about uh, your services and tell us actually about your journey and what led you to where you are today. Well, Halima, I just want to first say thank you so much for being on your show. It has been amazing to see your journey being able to work with you, you know, coming out of when you were getting your master's degree finishing and just to see you completely bloom and where you are today and you also discovering your true path and you uh, actually now creating your pocket. So, hey, kudos and let me give you some props on that, my sister. I'm so proud of you. So I am Kim Evans. I am a licensed esthetician, massage therapist, professional makeup artist, probably 35 plus years. And I'm also the owner of Two Gorgeous Integrated Wellness, which is a facial spa located now in, in Lafayette. When I opened up my business, I opened it up actually 1996 at the age of 29. So um, I've been in business now for 25 years and we are still standing strong. And it has been an amazing journey, ups and downs, valleys, highs and lows, and just with God being on my side and being my CEO and CFO as to how I have been able to sustain and maintain. So I'm so excited about what I do. So your question in terms of how I got to where I am, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a story. I try to give you the short version is I came from UC Berkeley graduate. I came from an extensive background of corporate, working for corporate Fortune 500 companies. And in and, and, and the nutshell of it, I just wasn't happy. I just wasn't happy. I was married at the time to my was husband and I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy in the corporate world, but it was something about when I put on makeup and lipstick. And I remember when I was a freshman at Cal, I actually was always into skincare. I always kept the good care of my skin and I actually used Mary Kay products. So fast forward, when I started working for Bank of America, I was a corporate auditor with Bank of America. And I said, you know what? I, to my was husband, I said, you know, I'm going to start selling Mary Kay cosmetics. And I found so much joy sharing women how to put on lipstick and eyeliner and makeup. It was something about that because, see, when you touch the spirit of a woman, a woman touches the spirit, oh, my God, and just manages the whole wealth and wellness of her whole home. When she feels good about herself and she feels good in her inner beauty and her spirit, and you can touch that, 
Oh my God, atmospheres, neurons, protons change in the air. And I was just so excited. Every time I would do these skincare classes, I was more happy doing that than I was going to my day job as a corporate auditor at the bank. So fast forward, I had just got to a point to where, you know what? I told my was husband, I said, you know what? I just can't take it. I can't take it. I just wasn't happy, didn't have no joy. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to become a licensed esthetician so that I can make money doing what I do. And so that's when I went back to school. I became a licensed esthetician. And so 1996 is when I opened up my first location, Two Gorges. Two Gorges was on my web, was actually on my license plate. That's how I came up with the name. So I had it on my car before I started the business. And so when I was looking for a name, I said, every woman deserves to look and feel absolutely too gorgeous. So that's how we came up with the name. And I, I phonetically spell it to G-R-R-J-I-S. So that was a story to that. And then, you know, I had several locations. My flagship location was Orinda, California. And that's where we grew it. That's where we got the, the whole recognition from the Bay. And it just went off from there, started teaching into the the beauty spa, uh, trade shows. I became recognized as the premier makeup artist for multi-ethnic skin and bridal makeup. I did my video, my DVD. I'm an author, and what it's just it just it was just beautiful. But my, my my services have always been clinical facials, massage therapy, waxing, and makeup. My private line, which is my products, two gorgeous skincare, my two gorgeous makeup, and my two gorgeous bath and body products. And so now brings us to where we are today, where I'm doing business coaching. But to segue into that, just different things that had occurred in the economy, tank 2008. So I had to downsize from a really beautiful five-room spa that I had with other massage therapists, estheticians, and I just had to start over. So I started over, but then God said, you need an open floor in order to generate and to rebrand yourself. See, sometimes you have to go right in order to go left because he blesses on the right. He actually moves on the right, but he blessed on the left. So I had to kind of like, okay, what do I need to do? And this is when the wellness piece came in. And then I went back to school and got my master's degree in holistic health education because I needed to serve my clients in a deeper and a greater way where God was taking me in my business as a licensed esthetician. So I had the experience of that, I had the products of that, I had my store on that, but then I had to add in the element of self-care and wellness. And so now when my clients come to see me, I can actually write them a diet, I can create them a diet plan, and we can put it all together, the beauty, the health, the wealth, the wellness, and then we can do the self-care management that brings me to today. So that's kind of a short kind of a version of it. And I'm now located in Lafayette, California, and I'm only doing single one-on-one -on -one appointments, which is nice. So as I begin to transition out of my journey of a esthetician into a business coach, which will be my retirement as I move forward, transition after this, because we all need to have kind of sort of a, um, a path, if you will, what, you, what is your next going to be? And so it's just a natural for me because I've just been coaching women all along, but now it's formal. So now I do webinars and I teach courses and I rebranding myself in terms of really sharing with other women, self-care management, 
with also creating that wealth along the way on how they can do that. So that is phenomenal, Kim. Yes, I have seen so much growth and development. Um, I have also been a client of yours, and what I uh, what I notice is you are so expansive. You're like your your you know a circle just wrap mm -hmm. around people with um generosity and beauty and when when you did my makeup it's like wow she is she is you are amazing um can let, you, let, me, let me also add to that i mean yes. that, that's the short version of the story yes but, but how i became the makeup artist back in the day you're a little bit too young we used to have this thing called floyd roberts and then we had um we had um Fashion Fair. So I became a, a platform makeup artist for flat, for Fashion Fair at the tail end as they were going out. And then all of a sudden, this beautiful woman comes on the scene and her name is Iman. So Iman Cosmetics come on the scene. And I was a platform makeup artist for Iman. Then Iman sold out and sold it to Lancome. So then I actually went into being a platform makeup artist for Lancome Cosmetics. So that's where the makeup piece comes in, as long with the Mary Kay that I have been doing forever in uber years. So I can pretty much do makeup in the dark. <laughs> I mean, it's just always been there with me. And my brides, I mean, I've done over probably several thousands of brides in my life of, of makeup. So makeup is always going to be my... It's always going to be my my bloodline because that's basically where I started in the business. And that's something that I continue to do now when my clients come to you and we're sharing with you. And it's a beautiful thing because we have women now that want to look really posture. They want to look very professional and camera ready on video. And so now my service when it comes to makeup has kind of like grown. Here we go. Rebranding again, right? Showing women how they can look their absolute best naturally in front of the camera. Exactly. Almost like um, a strategic image consultant. <laughs> like, and, and also with your coaching, it's like you allow people to express themselves and see themselves wholly. So I've experienced that myself. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about how you serve other women and help them be more successful in your, in your new business? Yeah, definitely. Um, when I did my master's program on holistic health education, I just segue just a little bit. Um, I actually created a wellness program for middle school and high school students. And that was teaching them how to be healthy, whole, um, and also to balance their nutrition and wellness, to be fit and to look beautiful. And so I taught actually five contracts with the district with that. That's that's the piece of, of me going into the holistic piece of it. And at the same time, as I was sharing with these young people how to love themselves, right? And it was an after-school program. Then COVID hit, and then we had to shut it down. Using the gifts and the talents of where they are so that they can love themselves, so that we can reduce the bullying and things that was going on with school. They can be more attentive. They can be more productive. So the same similar thing when it comes to women, when as one element piece that I coach them is really finding that center of self-worthiness because oftentimes we lose that center of self-worthiness 
no matter how much money that you're making. And it's like you kind of lose focus of that. So one of the main elements of my coaching practice is self-worthiness. It's actually mindfulness and really reconnecting women with mindfulness. And then we start from there. And then I help them to take their gifts and their talents of what they're doing, their experiences from the marketplace to the bank and blow up their business online. Blow it up. So that's the nutshell of what I do when it comes to that. Um, and I work with different genres, coaches, spiritual advisors, um, realtors. Um, I've worked with sex therapists, which has been wonderful. Um, I've worked with um, influencers. The journey has been nice and it's even getting better. Yes. And more expansive. See, as you expand, your gifts will make your, your gifts will make room for you. And I say that in Proverbs. And that is the element of why rebranding yourself is so important. And don't be afraid of it. So as the world shift, you have to shift. Things move. We will never go back to where we was before COVID. This is where we are right now. And as a business owner, if you are still standing as a business owner, I know many massage therapists, they're out. They're out of business. Many estheticians, they're out. They're out of business. If you were not recalculating, strategizing your business in the last 15 months, you're not going to survive. That's an automatic thing. So that's a gift that I do with women. Mm -hmm. Part of my signature training, self-worth, mindfulness, and let's strategize on how we can Pretty much take your experience, your education, your gifts, where you are right now, and let's package it at and focus that so that you can be successful online and shine. That's that's excellent. Um, can you tell me about uh, the significance of women using uh, the wellness services? Because, um, you know, that's that's another element of, of what we're we're experiencing so, right now. Specifically, what specifically what part of wellness services? Um, the massage, the makeup, just women taking care of themselves and, and taking that time out to uh, expand their beauty. That's that, okay. So it all starts with you know getting pedicures and getting your nails done. We're not talking about that. You know that's the edification of the outside, but let's talk about what's on the inside—that spiritual reconnection. So it's about really creating a self-care management system for you that works with you, your time schedule, what's going on with you, so you can find more joy, more happiness, so that you can spend more time with your family as well as gives back to yourself. Right. So when you talk about wellness, you talk about mental, the emotional. We heal on four levels: the physical, the emotional, the social. We heal on those levels as a massage therapist when my clients come into me and they come in for pain. But when we really look at the pain, the pain really isn't the pain. The pain could be an emotional pain. It could be a psychological pain. It could be um, um, it could be something that's that disconnect in the spirit. It could be something that's disconnected in terms of their nutrition. We all know that uh, disease starts in the gut and this is where wellness comes through. And that's the biggest brain. And so we look at reconnection. What is your relationship with food? So it's not a one answer. It's not a one tablet. You have to look at it at a whole continuum of a whole piece circle of what builds your wellness circle. 
And everybody's wellness circle is different. And when you can have someone that can assist you with that, whether it's a mentor, whether it's a coach, a facilitator, more than likely a coach or a mentor, or even a therapist, every woman needs to have their own wellness plan. So one of the things that I did when I had graduated from John F. Kennedy, we had an integrative wellness plan and we had to write that out. And I still look at my integrative wellness plan today. But what good is an integrated wellness plan, something that's going to make you and sustain you healthily well, if you're not going to execute it? So you have to execute it. Exactly. Yes, um, that's that's so transformational. Can you describe a couple of stories that you would like to share with us? Um, you know, people who have have been successful and you've seen their growth. If you, if I can share, I do remember sharing some things with you and I see those things coming true. Okay, so years ago, we've known each other for over 10 years. Years ago, I came into your spa to get a facial. My husband gifted me with makeup. Yes, for my graduation from John F. Kennedy. Yes. And uh, so I was getting my makeup done. And I remember saying, I don't see myself in this overweight body. I see myself as a fit yogi. And I still remember that saying that to this day. So when I'm taking care of myself and doing my self-care, I think of that. I'm like, I said that. And now I'm manifesting that into my reality. So um, there have been some time where we didn't see each other. And I came back to get ready um, to launch my podcast. And I was like, who can do my makeup? Kim. <laughs> and there you are. Woo! You had a podcast and you were like, you should do a podcast. <laughs> so yeah, we, uh-huh. we've come full circle. Yeah. And I did somewhat of like a business consulting for you when I was in my master's program. Yes. So, yes. so it's, yes. it's great to see your expansion and growth. Yes. Beautiful. Um, and look yeah. where you are today. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that when you spoke those words in terms of your yogi. See, when I'm working with clients, I see them as where they're going to be, not where they are at that moment. And that's what you have to do. You have to see where you're going to be, not where you are. And attach your energy level to that frequency and you tune into that frequency channel. And from that is how the universe began to give you what you're asking. Where you are right now, you manifested that you actually created that five, seven years ago. Right, right. Now it's manifesting yeah. right now, right? Yes. So right now, we actually started working on that five, seven years right, ago. Right, right, exactly. What you said yeah. and how you it's think. A, to think that I remember that. I remember clearly <laughs> saying that to you in your office. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm sure you have hundreds of success stories that you could share, like something visual that kind of touched you of an experience of one of your clients. And, oh, my God. And I, 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 God, I have so many experiences. That's probably going to be one of the, the other books that I'm I'm, wait, I'm writing a dating book right now. But that, that will definitely be one of the books I remember as a um, th- th- this is the piece where I put on my my wellness consultant hat because I did some work with Cigna Insurance and as a health educator. I'm a health educator and I go out to corporations from any of you guys that need people me to do a lunch and learns from you. So we we were out to PG&E 
And actually, um, I had an assignment to where I was health coaching for this particular company. Lady comes to me and she was talking about um, her hormonal imbalance. And I only had like 15 minutes with her. And sometimes I have to go straight to the juggler. And this was throwing her so out of whack, right? And I says, okay, ma'am, this is what you need to do. You need to go look into some Jerusalem artichoke. She said, Jerusalem artichoke. I said, yeah, I know Jerusalem artichoke is actually going to help to balance the symptoms of what's going on with you. Here is my website. Here is my email. And I want you to go get some Jerusalem artichoke. And I actually put her on two adaptogenic herbs. She was having a hormonal imbalance and some other things that was going on. Quick, long, quick story. So I said, you go get your Jerusalem artichoke, put it in, in salads, look it up. Your homework is to figure out how to use it. But the source that's going to balance what's going on molecularly is your Jerusalem artichoke and these two adaptogenic herbs. Okay, long story short, the woman goes and do specifically what I told her to do. So she sends me an email. She said, Kim, oh my God. I said, did it work? I said, did it work? She said, did it work? Oh my God. Oh my God. The bloating. I mean, and she went on and on and on and on and on and on. And it's like, it worked, didn't it? It really did. Okay, Kim, I got to set up some coaching sessions with you. This was absolutely phenomenal. And this is from a client that I got when I was health coaching, actually for Cigna Insurance in a corporation. So, I mean, we got it's just numerous of stories like that. And that was just a drop in a bucket. As a massage therapist, when clients come into me, particularly women, and they have pain, most of the time, the pain and the pain, the pain is not from an accident. The pain comes from unforgiveness and their energy being out of alignment. And my job is to help them to realign that energy to come back from a dysbiosis to a homeostasis. So we go into a deeper of that. And nothing to do with your diet. You can you can exercise and do, you can have kale all day, every day, but it's not going to change the cortisol that's producing in your body because you can't seem to manage your stress level. But once you get in and you can deal with the trigger and the demons of that, it goes. So that's another story. So now we're talking about well care. We're talking about wellness. So it's not always just one thing. It's a continuum. And how are you as a woman building your integrative approach? I'm going to bring it back to the piece of what I do. You know, when I'm coaching women, it's like, yeah, you want to make your six figures and you need more clients. And you want to build your business brand and you want to sell the products and really build your business. But then that's one aspect. And we go into signature branding and how I can help you to do that online. But then we go back to, where are you not well? It's always where are you out of balance. So back to your question of wellness, everybody has a signature DNA wellness. What are you doing for your integrative wellness approach? How are you integrating that? And how is that being manifested? Excellent. And on my own personal story, if I may, I, I do have yes. a story of myself so I had to test the waters. And, you know, when I started my business, it was so interesting. I just wasn't happy. I just really couldn't find my happy place. And then subsequently, years later, doing the business over, you know, with years, I found my happy place, found my happy, found my joy, but Kim wasn't healthy. 
And so I can speak a lot to women hormonal imbalance. I can speak to women that are going through fibroids. I can speak to women that are going through these things that create such a psychological imbalance. I can speak to that because I went through all that. And so when I found myself along the way of these health conditions that I had to kind of like correct and I did it by rebuilding and having a holistic approach to wellness. And that was nutrition and that was fitness and that was diet and that was mindfulness, which is the crust of what I teach and practice and what I coach to women business owners today. It is a terrible thing when your mind is not well, but when your mind is well, you can achieve and do any and everything. That's the truth. So um, I wanted to ask you, um, what role has community played in you, with you as an individual and as a business owner? What role has community played? You mean like my church? Uh, in any community, your church community, your your neighbors, your friends, family, um, on this show, I mean, like, we talk about visualization, community, yeah. uh, and gratitude. So I ask people how community has what role community has played with their lives. Right. I, I know that's a that's a that's a an important element in a part of your vision and what you share in your podcast. Um, and I love that. Um, community is everything. It's, I think it's important, but community can be developed in different ways. So it could be community of fellowship with your church community, but you know, COVID hit. See, this is why we talk about rebranding because if you were a member of your church for years and years and years, and then now COVID, we couldn't go to church for 15 months and even myself coming back now. So you build your community as you see fit for it. Now we have to do it virtually. I love the fact that people are building communities through Facebook. You're building yours through your Facebook group, your beautiful group that you get actually that your that your webinar that you're about to start teaching in in yeah. December is going to be so timely. I'm going to be teaching one too on how to kick sugar and how to stay healthy and sexy through the holidays. Um, but 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 I think I think as your life shifts and as uh, your experiences change and expand, I think uh, gives you the freedom to create the community at that time to serve you. So it just depends on what you're going through in your life. So another example would be, again, the Facebook group. Um, those are beautiful. Facebook is a wonderful way to build a group and a community. Um, mm -hmm. Podcasting, as you're doing, you know, as I'm also doing with my podcast show which is um, Inspired Conversations with Kim Evans. And so that's even, even more so a great way to build community. You build community on social media. Just make sure that the presence is right and your target is right. You know, I build community on my IG page, not my Too Gorgeous page, but I build more community on my Nutrition Over 40. I have a Nutrition Over 40 page on IG where I just show women, professional women, that can take a meal and make it a holistic plant-based meal in 20 minutes. So that's a community, plant-based, that's a community. So I think it's just really getting in touch where you need, who the people you want to serve and what is your story? What did you want to share? And you start there. 
And that's how you build your community. I had a young lady, one of my clients just the other day, and she called and she needed me to uh, talk to her about uh, starting her podcast show. It was so beautiful. This lady, 21 years old, building her community already at the age of 21. I mean, I started my business Two Gorgeous at the age of 29. I mean, if I could have had a podcast show back then, I'd be on fire. I mean, I would totally be on fire. So I just, I, think, I love these young people doing this, you know, starting podcast shows. So that's how I would speak to um, community. That's beautiful. Yes, I could see a lot in what you said. I can glean a lot from what you said. You know, it's kind of sounds like when you are ready for certain elements of community, you call that in to yourself yes. and it takes on that shape and form. Yes. Um, yes. That's beautiful. Yes, and it, it just becomes natural of who do you want to serve and how can you serve? And that becomes your community. And it's not about the numbers. It's Let me just say, it's like, oh my God, I want to have a million YouTubers. It's not about that. It's what your message is. You only need one person. And then that grows from there. Exactly. Uh, do you have any uh, closing words or anything else you'd like to share with us today? Well, I just think that when I look back through my journey and really trying to find my happy place, you can't look for outside things to make you happy or people, places, or things, right? Or even money. Money is an energy exchange. It took me so long to figure it out, but I finally have figured it out. You're going to have ups. You're going to have downs. You're going to have highs. You're going to have lows. You're going to have El Nino's. You're going to have earthquakes. You're going to have tsunamis. You're going to have those deaths. I've even gone through deaths all through my 25 years in my business, you're going to have high lows and low valleys. But as an entrepreneur, do you have the spirit to withstand all of those things? And the thing that will help you to do that is faith, forgiveness, but it's self-care management. And I strongly tell women, really focus and take care of you first. And that is not being selfish. That's selfless. That's you taking care of you. When we have women that are still dying, the number one condition, which is heart disease. Why is it that till this day, we still have women, the number one condition dying, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes. Why is that? Because we are not given to ourselves. We love so deep, every and outside, everything, but we don't give into ourselves. Why is it that African-American women, 80% overweight and obese? We got to change that. We got to change the trajectory of that. Be well, live well for you and love you. And that's what I would land. And that's what I would end with for all women. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kim. Um, as I said, I have a special announcement. Uh, my Mindfulness Power Hour starts on December 1st in my Facebook group. Mm -hmm. So check the description box. I will provide more information on that. It will be held every Wednesday at noon Pacific Standard Time. Um, I want to say thank you for tuning in. Manifest Wellness with Gratitude, Visualization, and Community. Go ahead and subscribe now for new content every week, and I'll see you next time. Thank you very much for being on your show. God bless.
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Whether it's filling up on fuel, switching on the lights or doing the weekly shop, you may have noticed that prices have been going up recently. Inflation, the rate at which those prices for goods and services increases, hit 4.2% in the year to October, more than double the Bank of England's target. What we've currently got is, is, is an increase in inflation, which has really you know, taken hold during this year. Um, and unfortunately, we expect that to continue over the winter period. It's because of a combination of many national and international issues, from a lack of building materials for construction and not enough microchips for cars. As we recover from the impact of the coronavirus pandemic and a global energy crisis, the economy will be put to the test. We know there are global challenges ahead. That's why the budget set out a plan to build a stronger economy with support for working families at its heart. What do the recent inflation figures mean for the UK economy? Is there good and bad inflation? And how much of an impact do other economies have on our own? Hello and welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnahan, as we examine the story beyond the headline. I'm Ed Conway, I'm Economics and Data Editor at Sky News. Very good to have you on the Sky News Daily Podcast because we want to, I suppose, pick apart inflation. I think we're all aware of it. We all, you know, watch out for the numbers when they're released every month and they seem to have been on a pretty steady upward trend at the moment. But, let, you know, let's get under the skin here. What actually, this sounds so silly. What actually is inflation? I think it's not silly at all. I mean, you know, it's we need to talk about this stuff more, really, because inflation was always a bit of one of those statistics that most people didn't pay that much attention to for the last kind of, you know, 10 years or so, because it was always pretty low. It's just the rate at which prices are rising every year. So it literally is the rate, of, you know, here's how much a typical basket of goods. And when I say a typical basket of goods, they do all these surveys to work out how much you're spending, you know, the average family is spending on each year. There are all sorts of things you might not buy every year, like cars and, and, and other things like that, but they're kind of weighted. So there's only a, a segment of that basket. You're talking, I don't know how many fractions of a, of a used car is in there in, in the basket for every year. But you're trying to reflect how much prices are rising across the economy. And why does that matter? I think, you know, it's ultimately because prices are your best measure of the nexus between supply and demand you know when there's a lot of people wanting a certain thing it pushes up the price when there's not enough people wanting a certain thing when there's not enough of something that can also push up the price so in various different ways it gives you this prism into seeing what's going on in the economy and then it's also at the same time there are points at which inflation can be certainly bad news so you know back in the 1970s inflation was very high it took a long time for central bankers to try and bring it back down. And, you know, you've had episodes of hyperinflation before, never in, really in the UK. But when prices are rising so fast that you're kind of having to change your prices in the shop, you know, every hour or so, 
when that happens, it's really destabilizing for an economy. Think about it. If you're thinking about whether you go out to the shops, that decision about whether you should go this hour or the next hour, that is a pretty frantic situation to have in an economy when basically all you really want to do is to transact with each other and build a business and understand whether you want to buy a house now and understand how much your salary is going to be worth. So inflation matters like in a primal way, but we just haven't focused on it much recently because it's been so low for such a long time. And I suppose, I mean, given those dilemmas you mentioned there about people deciding to go out to the shops within the hour or next, that's that's kind of Weimar Germany type inflation. That's extreme. If like, you delay for an hour, then it goes up another thousand percent. We're not we're not going through that at the moment. <laughs> but but no, but we are going through a situation where prices of certain goods are rising much faster than they normally do. And talking to various people across all sorts of different sectors, I was talking to a construction person. They were saying that steel prices had gone up just the week before by another, I can't remember, ten percent or something, and that they hadn't seen quite such a regular change in prices. So we're not, we're nothing like Weimar, we're not, nowhere near like that. But it, prices are, they're, they're, they're real again. Inflation's a thing. Just let me ask you another naive question on the personal basis. So as I understand how the, the inflation figure is calculated, on the individual basis, if you don't buy certain things that are in that basket or indeed live in a certain area where they are actually cheaper but it's been smoothed out to give us this one national figure, then your rate, your personal rate of inflation is actually lower or higher than the official rate. Totally, yeah. Your personal inflation could be much higher, it could be much lower depending on what you're buying. If you're buying right now the price of used cars, for instance, okay, we don't buy cars every year, or at least most of us don't. I don't know about you, Dermot. Do you buy a car every year? <laughs> every, a, a new bike, yeah, yeah. for instance, maybe, yeah. but not a car. But we don't buy them every year. But if you happen to have bought one recently you are facing a massive level of inflation because they went up by 27% in, in six months. In six months, I, I say inflation is basically a figure. Whenever you see an inflation number, it's, it's an annual number. That's how much the price is raised. But over just six months, they're up 27%. Crazy. Why are they up so much? It's because there aren't many new cars around. I don't know. You know, if you're trying to buy a new car right now, it's really difficult. You've got these really long order times. Why have you got long order times? It's because there are lots of reasons, but one of them is that you need semiconductors, computer chips to go into cars. We don't have enough of them at the moment because there's a global shortage of them. And I think this is the interesting one of the interesting things about what we're going through right now. It's a very global story with issues with semiconductors, with gas prices being really high. These are things that, frankly, the Bank of England couldn't really control if it wanted to. And yet they're feeding into massive, by comparison with recent years, inflation in, in, in the UK. And it's hard to see when that ends. Is there good inflation or and bad inflation or is there a happy medium? Because I know the Bank of England has been set this target. I don't know how it, they came up with it, of, of keeping inflation at 2%, which they never seem to do. They're either above or below. And then isn't it if they miss the target by 1% every exactly. month, the governor has to write a letter of apology to the chancellor. Yeah. So is 2% really good and anything else is really bad? I mean, you know, it's, it's a great thing about simple questions is they often uncover, you know, the emperor's got no clothes. I don't think there's anything very scientific about that number. 2% could be 3% if they wanted it to be. It could be 4%. A lot of people advocate that it should be a bit higher and that could help drive growth. It just so happens that 2%, if you look back over the past decade and a half or so, actually look back to like 1997 when the bank first got the target. It wasn't, I don't want to go into it in boring details, but it wasn't 2% before because they had a slightly different target, but it was more or less around that level. The average inflation level 
over that period has been kind of close to to 2%, I think. So it seems to be kind of okay. It doesn't cause any problems elsewhere in the economy. It's not deflationary because, again, you know, actually, if prices were falling, then that would also cause concerns, problems across the economy because then you might be trying to hang on to your money in a way because uh, in the same way that you are pushed to go into the supermarkets, prices are rising so fast, maybe when prices are falling, you want to hang on to your money and that's not a great place to be either. And in fact, some people, the economic fraternity, I'm not one of them, but they obsess about inflation because we had the 1970s. But you can make the argument that the real problem, and certainly we had that in the 1930s, was deflation, falling prices. And inflation is, is slightly more benign because it erodes away debt. But frankly, this is obviously a long-winded answer. But the short version is good in inflation in inverted commas is one that's not too high or too low. It's the Goldilocks thing, isn't it? And it doesn't freak people out and stop them from actually making those decisions they want to. You know, people just want to live their lives without this scary, exogenous thing that's forcing you to suddenly change your your behaviour. And inflation's that. And that's why... I think a lot of people are kind of nervous that it's up at 4.2%, which is really quite high by recent standards. Seeing as we're talking flations, we've had in and D. What about stag? Uh, stag. <laughs> flation. Stagflation was this... So during that 1970s period, you had really high double-digit inflation. So prices rising to that level where it might be forcing you to make decisions about buying stuff now and or indeed being freaked out by it. Stagflation is when you get high inflation, but you don't have high growth to go alongside it. Okay, so if we're all getting wealthier, like fundamentally wealthier each year by 5%, let's say, and inflation's 4%, 5%, the two things are in, in tune. But that back then you had a situation where you had inflation was in double digits and growth was basically really low. And so prices were just getting higher and higher. Everything was getting more expensive. People didn't necessarily have the money because when I say growth, What's growth? It's basically just a measure of how much income is being generated across the economy, you know, how much work is being done, all those things. So people didn't have the money, but prices were getting higher. And it was a major cultural and economic issue. And why is it a big issue? And why is it quite malign? Because inflation is quite regressive. And when we say that, it means it really hits those who are on lower incomes the most, you know. And people talk about taxes and about taxes are kind of structured to make it so that the rich pay more. With inflation, it's the poor who end up paying more as a percentage of their income. So it's not a good place to be in a kind of society where you're thinking hard about what's going on there. Let's get to the here and now then. And what role is COVID playing in the global factors driving inflation? So we've had lockdowns, large parts of the global economy, shutting down for very long periods of time, goods not moving, everything you've described there, Ed, and then bounce backs, slight retrenchments with more lockdowns, another bounce back taking place, who knows what's around the corner in terms of COVID. Is that the main driver of it all then? It's definitely the bit that's made it intense. There have been kind of long-term issues with the way that various bits of the world fit together. Transportation seems to have worked pretty well recently. And when I say transportation, I mean shipping, I mean getting stuff around via lorries, I mean trains. But in practice, if you look really hard at that, even before the pandemic, you'd have seen it was kind of creaking. There weren't enough truck drivers before the pandemic in this country 
and in the US, particularly in the US, actually. We talk about that like it's a domestic issue. They are going on about that a lot right now in, in, in the States. But also the ports weren't really working all that well. They, they are nowhere near as kind of up to date as many of the ports you kind of see in China and Hong Kong and places like that. And so what happened is we had the pandemic, a massive fall in economic growth and a massive bounce back. And suddenly this system, which isn't really, you know, all that kind of great, is having to work at a rate that it's never had to work at before. And it's creaking and it's struggling. And the upshot of that is that we're seeing big problems in shipping. And because it's so difficult to get one thing from one place to another, that's contributing even more to this inflation. And does and does the UK have an added factor in terms of Brexit? I suppose it's hard to quantify, but we certainly it's hear hard to say. some it, of the labour shortages. It would be strange that. if that wasn't playing a part in the UK. But like I say, it might be a marginal difference, but it seems like the bulk of this, we're hearing the same stories in the US, basically. Mm. We're hearing exactly the same stories in the US. So it's not just Brexit specific, but it seems pretty likely that Brexit has, has made it a bit worse than it would have otherwise been. But we'd probably still be talking about truck drivers, even if it weren't for for Brexit. And the point that you made about growth, so it's not just about how to get stuff from one place to another, that, but there is a big bit of it. And let's remember that one of the consequences of the pandemic is not just that we've bounced back and we're having this unfamiliar period where you've got like 6% growth and that's just weird. The system isn't used to that. But it's that we're changing our way of of lifestyle and many of us many more of us are working from home you're seeing as a result of that many more deliveries that are going to home more people are doing online shopping than ever before so there are more trucks on the road it's just like as simple as that there is more stuff going between houses rather than going between warehouses and supermarkets and economists call these kind of secular shifts so you've got this long-term shift that suddenly people are spending more and ordering it back home that's happening at the same time as all of this which exacerbates it all and I suppose that the final point about growth is just that everyone wants to build back better, don't they? You know, Boris Johnson does, Biden does, they've all got the same phrase. But what does that mean in practice? It means you kind of need to make more stuff. And making more stuff means you need more energy to fuel that activity. By the way, China is building back, I don't know if they're building back better, but they're certainly building a lot at the moment. And so that in turn means there's more people trying to get hold of natural gas. And that is what part of the reason why we've had this extraordinary spike in, in natural gas. On top of that, there have been some, you know, China hasn't been able to mine as much coal as it, as it wants to. And then overhanging all of this, before you say it, is the fact that a lot of people are trying to think really hard about how we get hold of energy without having to burn fossil fuels because of net zero. I don't think that's like a massive part of this, but I think it does overshadow it because people are conscious of, of this and I mean gas prices are just have been crazily high. It is worth saying though Dermot, they, they have come down a fair bit since those peaks when we were kind of reporting about it every, every day. They've come off a bit but they're still above where they were let's say in the summer. Coming up, what is inflation doing in the United States? I want to ask you about the United States there. You mentioned Build Back Better and Joe Biden, lots of bees there. And there, by the way, their inflation is incredibly high Yeah, well, high that's well. what I want to say. Inflation's higher mm. than the United Kingdom. And at the same time, we've just seen Joe Biden celebrating getting his infrastructure bill passed, trillion-plus dollars of spending, still another bill that he's trying to get through with a trillion and a bit more. The little, as you can tell, that I know about economics, surely you shouldn't be, um, you know, throwing fuel on the fire at the moment. Shouldn't it be? you know, pulling things well, in a bit. I mean, so, so part of the reason probably that the US is facing even higher inflation than over here is that 
they've had even more stimulus, so fiscal stimulus, basically spending. So Joe Biden came in on the promise of doing a massive amount of spending. And they have done a massive amount of spending, both on individuals, so kind of giving money to families to buy them through this period, but also this Build Back Better plan. And that's you're talking about kind of trillions of dollars over the course of the coming years. They're enormous sums. And let's go back to where we started. What's inflation? It's a measure of prices. And what do prices respond to? They can respond to supply and demand. And in this case, you've got a massive amount of demand that's just been injected into the US economy by Joe Biden and his various different plans. People have more money, they want to spend more. Companies are being given more money to spend, they're going to spend more. People have been encouraged to try and go for the energy transition, so getting towards eliminating net zero. Guess what? That involves spending a lot of money trying to build new plants that might be greener than the ones we had before, all of which is going to contribute all else equal to higher inflation. On the flip side, though, is what you've got in the US and in the UK is independent central banks. So you've got central banks whose job it is, nominally, to keep inflation as close as possible to a certain level. They don't have as explicit a target in the US, but it's the same kind of vibe. You know, keep inflation low, try not to get unemployment up. And so for me, the interesting story of the next six months, a year, maybe longer, is what happens next. Do we see central banks, like the Bank of England, raising interest rates or the Federal Reserve that in their case they may kind of it's called tapering QE so reducing the the rate at which they're buying up government bonds but basically it's the same thing you know putting their feet, foot on the brake putting their foot on the on the kind of monetary brake do you see that happening at the same time and what does that mean for tension between our central banks and our governments and that might seem like quite a dry issue but We've been quite lucky just because inflation has been so low for the last kind of 10 years. A lot of the history of the last, we could say like 100 years, you could go even back, back even further, you know, relationships between governments and the people who control the coinage, which is what central banks ultimately do. That relationship has always been quite difficult. I think George Bush blamed losing the 1992 election on Alan Greenspan because Alan Greenspan raised interest rates just before and he never forgave him for it. Alan Greenspan was the, the head and of the this, Fed. And this is the older George Bush, the dad. This is the, yes, exactly George H.W. Bush. Those clashes between politicians and the people, you know, the mm. pointy heads who decide what happens with the interest rates have been a big part of not quite this history, but modern history, we might be about to go back into that world. But even, Ed, I'm guessing here, just listening to what you're saying here, just on pure economic decisions from the Bank of England's point of view, this is the the judgment of Solomon, isn't it? When to push up interest rates. As you say, that's a way of taking demand out. But then if you take out too much, then people, they sit on their money, they don't spend it, and then the economy takes a nosedive. Timing is everything, isn't it? That's, I mean, it, it is, uh, you know, wouldn't want to be taking those decisions, really. Well, I mean, by the same token, interest rates are really low at the moment, 0.1% in the UK. They've never, they've literally never been that low. So even if the bank raised them to, you know, the first rate rise is probably going to be 0.15 percentage points, 15 basis points, which takes it up to 0.25. Up until uh, Brexit, that was still the lowest that we've ever had in the history of kind of capitalism. So they've probably got room to raise them a bit. And also, let's not forget, most of us who have mortgages these days are on fixed rate mortgages, actually a bigger proportion than ever before. I think it's like 80% of all mortgages. And probably a lot of the people that 20% who are on variable rates, a lot of those are going to be quite low 
amounts that have, of debt left. That means that the impact on households of raising interest rates is just less than it ever has been before. That being said, when you have that moment where the people like to start to refix their mortgages, it could be in a year's time, it could be in six months' time, it could be in a year's time, it could be in five years' time, then you start to see the pain actually kicking in because suddenly your bills are going up. Which is just to say that even if they raise rates a bit in the next year, it may take a while before we get the kind of real impact on households. You might see it on businesses at first. The other thing, I suppose the only other thing to say is like, we do talk about interest rates in terms of borrowing, but also there's savings. I mean, they've been incredibly low. It's been a terrible time to be a saver. Terrible. And as a result, more people putting money into the stock market, which has helped push up stock prices, which are going kind of crazy at the moment. But to be a saver has been terrible. And so some people would say, well, maybe it's maybe it's about time that savings had a better rate. And in terms of personal incomes, I mean, we know what effect you've described it there that inflation can have. We've talked about the You talked there about the tension between central banks and governments, but the government's doing a bit itself to suppress demand by putting up taxes. That's true. It is. It's doing. It's putting up taxes. So that was in the budget. Well, actually, it wasn't in the budget, was it? It was like a, a month or so before the main decision was when it raised national insurance, the health and social care levy. It's raising taxes. It's spending a bit more. But the net impact of all of those decisions in the budget, what they've done recently, is to raise a lot of taxes. And it hasn't yet kicked in. Again, that stuff kicks in you know, next April. Basically, when you look at all of this, you don't see anything that seems like the feel-good factor that says people are going to be feeling really you know, well off and want to go out and splurge. So it's possible that all of that starts to kind of diminish the inflation. And I think a lot, you know, the Bank of England thinks you could see a situation where gas prices kind of fall, inflation drops down even faster than they are currently expecting. And come, you know, the end of next year, or maybe 2023, things start to look actually almost kind of below target, or heading for that deflation almost. They have been forecasting for a long time that inflation wasn't going to spike and then it has spiked and every single month it's taken everyone by surprise. So that's the way it's heading right now, higher. My thanks to Ed Conway and to you for listening to the Sky News Daily Podcast hosted by me, Dermot Manahan. This edition was produced by Soila Aparicio and Annie Joyce, along with Simon Windsor. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find plenty more like it where you found this one. And we'd always love a review while you're there. The climate crisis can be an overwhelming and emotional conversation. We will not let you get away with this. But it isn't just about cutting carbon emissions or reporting on disasters. On Sky News Climatecast, we'll examine the big issues in depth with scientists, policymakers and activists. Every week, we'll highlight how small changes can make a big difference as we look for solutions to climate change problems. Sky News Climatecast. Listen, follow, subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes.
Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.